Hey, homie. Hey, homie. I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa, 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 rasa. This is the reality dysfunction. Here is the second part of our interview with Dr. Yomaira Figueroa. Now, what about the gift of reading? You, you definitely gave these kids a gift, you know, the experience of Puerto Rico, the Hibaros, really knowing the true, the true essence and a connection to the land. And also you talk about your father and how your father was provided you with the gift of reading, even though he only had a third grade education. So could you talk a little bit about that? You know, you, I, I hear you on the, on the building our own archives and eventually getting our information into these institutions where it can be shared with others. But to begin with, how do we build those literate rich homes? How was that? How did that happen for you? Um, you know, my dad was a big reader. And like, and also like uh, uh, my mom at the time was also went to church a lot and they read, we read a lot in church. My father wasn't really into that, uh, the particular religion that my mother was in. Um, but my father definitely loved reading. And I think he instilled the love of reading to me and to my sister. Because my sister was someone who was like reading, like voraciously read books. And I would watch her read books. She's 10 years older than me. So, you know, um, I really looked up to her and looked up to my dad. And I think, you know, one of the things that really was important to me, and I've read this, I've read about this a little bit, was um, I always loved to read, but I didn't really think about reading as life-changing until I got shipped off to Puerto Rico for uh, a summer after misbehaving when I was like 12 years old. They sent me away to teach me a lesson. And my cousin Muñeca had been in my grandmother's house like a week before me, and she had gone back to Brooklyn. And she left behind a copy of Julia Alvarez's uh, How the Garcia Girls Lost Their Accent. And so yeah. she left that book in my grandmother's house, and I was like 12 years old. And I was like bored out of my mind, bored <laughs> out of my mind in Caguas, in the Barriada Morales. Like my grandmother was not letting me out the house, you know? And so I started reading this book and I was just like, you know, I've always loved to read. I've had this example from like my father, you know, even though he didn't have an, an education, he always was like reciting poetry and, you know, just it, for me, it was always like this amazing thing. And I never, you know, I never thought about my father as like not educated. Right. Like, and, and that's why I think it's so important because we have these very flat conceptions of education, you know? People can just be so brilliant and be philosophers and thinkers without having to go to a traditional school, right? But when I read this this book, I, like, devoured it, devoured it. And I also, like, the majority of the book went over my head. I was a kid, right? Like, that book is, like, for an older person. But I just was like, oh, my God. She's like, I understand this. Like, I can relate to this book. Like, these girls are, like, Latina protagonists. Like, she's a Latina writer, and she's, like, writing us. Into being, and I was like, oh my God, this is so incredible. Like, I could really like see myself for the first time in something that I'm reading, right? I think that really like kind of reshifted my brain at a very young age where I was like, I love these books and I'm gonna like try to find as much as I can. Um, and it wasn't until many years later that I really kind of honed in on like the like Latino literary canon, right? Like, because at the, that point, I was just like, this is really good. I'll try to find something else, but if I can't, I'll read all these like black american authors and all these other stuff and i'll read anything and get my hands on honestly but it wasn't until much later towards the end of high school that i started reading like um pd thomas's down these mean streets and judith ortiz Kofer's silent dancing and um 
Esmeralda Santiago's like when I was Puerto Rican and all these other stuff. I was like, oh, this is a this is a thing. Like it all kind of fits together. And this is a an area. And I was like, I wanna I wanna set this area. But when I went to college, you know, um, it was for me such a gift. Like I was just like amazed that I got into college, that I was able to like make it there. And that I was actually doing well, you know, I was not a very good high school student, but I excelled in college. And so when I got to, to college, I was like, I want to be a high school teacher because I love like literature, like literature can change people's lives. It can help you understand your own life better, like your own family histories better. Like, you know, once once you start reading, like, you know, for example, Peter Thomas is down these new streets. You know, he is talking about the 1930s in New York City, right? Like he is of a particular kind of generation. And my father was born in 1930 right? He was a very, my father was a much older generation. And in like reading that, I was like, oh, you know, you kind of get a bit of a context for like how parents can be and like, right? Like all this kind of stuff, like just those kinds of the difficulty of these histories of migration, the longing for home that you potentially can't go to, but you want to like instill in your children that love for that homeland, right? Like all that stuff. And I was like, I'm going to be a high school teacher. I'm going to go back to Hoboken. I'm going to fuck some shit up. Everybody's going to be reading all this shit. Like, fuck that, right? Like, and so, um, that's how I felt about it. And so I went in and I was like, I'm going to be an English major. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to teach you this stuff. And it was really like that very early experience of like my father and my sister and, you know, all of that, my family really um, taking seriously the written word, right? Um, that made me, made me do that. And then obviously I shifted jobs. <laughs> and that's for like a different reason. Like I, you know, when I got to, to college, I was like, I felt so lucky. I was like, oh, I made it. <laughs> and I made it with three of my friends, you know? Um, and little by little, I saw other people who had got to college with dropping out. And I was like, fuck, what are we going to do? Like, you know, there's only two of us left. Like, what are we doing? And I realized, like, you know, one of the reasons that I never dropped out of college after for having every reason to drop out of college, I didn't do it because I had professors and I had mentors that were like so supportive. And most of them were like Latino and black folks who were so supportive. There was other professors, like white professors who could not care, like, I would go there and be like, my father, se me está muriendo, like, I have to go to the hospital, and they're like, oh, well, you better get the paper in time, we're going to fill the class, and I'm like, mother, you know, <laughs> and so then I was like, you know what, like, I think my my third year of college, I was like, I'm going to be a college professor, because the very few of us that make it here, we need somebody to, like, help us finish, like, this is not a game, you know, and so that was the transition, but I still stuck with the literature, because I think, you know, when we think about the literary humanities, you know, I always I always say literature is a reflection of the human. And if we take that seriously, we get to see a different understanding, a different formation and a different possibility for our lives. Right. In our in our current moment and even rethinking the past and, and reimagining the future in different ways. And so for me, that's how I how I like root myself in that literary tradition. Yeah. And in, in my kids, middle school and in their elementary school, um, they always talk about that we want mirrors not windows when kids are reading and it's and that really always like stuck in my head when they talk about you want kids like peering into this world that they're not a part of or doesn't connect with them but they want to have characters and situations and books where they can be like oh they can relate much better so i can totally you know I'm sorry. Yeah, I, 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 it's so great the, the what you're saying and the, the conversation because I think that our stories are not just in books, right? And I remember when Julia Alvarez, when Esmeralda Santiago, Rosario Ferrer, all these, you know, 
uh, Latin American authors who are publishing in, in English and Spanish. And it was like, all of a sudden, it's like, wow, all this stuff beyond the, you know, older things that I would have access to, right? But then, like, realizing when, you know, and all of us at some point or the other have worked with the Cesar Chavez collection in making it what it is today, right? On making it... So you needed people that dedicated the time to create that because the institution itself was not going to do it. And the thing is, is that our stories, they come in photos, in movies, letters, in personal papers, posters. I think of buttons, you know, oral stories, right? And our community centers are already um, holding to some of that, right? If, like when I was doing work with LGBT community centers across the country, every every community center had a level of a library and archive of the information of the work that they've been doing for years. And in Puerto Rico, I've worked with many community centers. I think of one Surcando La Historia in Lajas, that they have an archive and it's just people that want to preserve the stories of their communities and there's no funding, and there's no training. Maybe they'll get some kind of training at some point, but that's how the Cesar Chavez collection happened, was because students wanted to happen, and a few staff at MSU decided to support, and we had to fight to get it. But to this day, that has been the, the perspective that you need to do it that way because the institutions are not going to give it to us. So I think... You know, Francisco's question, do they really want our stories? And I think the answer is, look at the budget line. If the budget line in the library budget says you have a ethnic studies, Latin American studies, Latino, Chicano studies librarian, and then you have a million dollars on a budget to buy items to preserve our stories, then, you know, and actually forget about the million. Compare it to what the art library is getting and compare it to what the agricultural library is getting, and you'll see the, the money is right there. The, the, the budget is clear how much each collection has, and all we got to do, Jomaira and you all, that love to preserve our histories is find a few rich Latinos right, that they can donate and give monies to preserve these collections. And we'll put their name in the name of the library, the, you know, whatever, Juan del Pueblo donated. But, you know, we get the funding and it's unrestricted funding. And there's a lot of rich Latinos out there and they don't necessarily have to vote for Trump. <laughs> so anyway, go visit, go visit your community center and I'll bet you that there is stories of our communities, you know, um, um, there. So, yeah, I yeah. just wanted to say that. I, you know, I just want I know I've been real quiet. I'm sorry, you guys, but I have just been very, very captivated by what you're saying. It's always good to hear that things are going well at Michigan State because there's so much potential for it to be not going well. But it sounds like things are, sounds like things are happening. That's good. <laughs> But I agree with what Juan Carlos said. I, they, you, you have to force them to take those papers, and you have to force them to give you money. I mean, that that's why the Cesar Chavez Library is there right now because we forced them to give us that money. I mean, we kicked their ass until they gave us that money, right. and there were people in place 
who were able to use the threat of that ass kicking to get more money. Right. I mean, it's, you know, and some people would call that extortion. I mean, you know, whatever, but I mean, it's there now. The archive is there. I mean, it's, it's important. You know, I take students all the time uh, to Denver to look at the archives for the crusade for justice and to think about how much would be lost if those papers weren't, weren't preserved. I mean, it's, I mean, it's heartbreaking to think about that, right? And so, yeah, I think I think it's I think it's absolutely true. Um, also, just wanted to say too that I read down these mean streets when I was a very young boy, and um, that was a that was a formative book for me. I mean, it it really was, and I think it's I think it also started this very long love affair I have with books that are written by people who are from New York about like their experiences growing up. I know I was, when I first went to visit Alex and when she was in Brooklyn, I was reading this book, not, not because I'm like a religious or anything, but I was reading the book because it fit into that genre. It's called The Cross and the Switchblade. And that guy was talking all about the neighborhood that Alex's building was in. <laughs> and it was, you know, just like what a war zone it was at that time. And then, you know, but yeah, down these mean streets. I mean, I never, I never recovered from that book. That yeah. book, that was a good book. It's really good. Yeah. And you know that I found a few years ago, and I didn't know this until, you know, way later. Well, first, I was really mad because when I went to Berkeley as a graduate student, I was like, I'm going to do, you know, this project on Puerto Ricans. Puerto Ricans are the most depressed people in the world. You know what I'm saying? Like, super, like, fucking. Girl. Nobody got it as bad as us. And then I met, like, the rest of my core from ethnic studies, and I was like, okay. <laughs> issues Um, but I had wanted to do this project Um, do you know when I went to Berkeley I did not know who Cesar Chavez was like that's how fucking split the nation is literally you know thinking through like Latinx history Um, and also when I went to Berkeley like I was like oh I'm Puerto Rican studies maybe they're like Puerto Rican studies like what is that and I'm like (laughs) and so you could there was like this lack of, of connection but when I lived in Berkeley, um, Piri Thomas lived in Berkeley, and I mm-hmm. and I did not continue my project. I had written my senior thesis on Piri Thomas, and when I went to Berkeley, I was like, no, I need to like Alejandro un poquito from this project. I need to really think like more relational, which was really important. But then I was like, damn, I really missed out on that opportunity to talk to him. But then in going back to that project years later, I found this um, film called The World of Piri Thomas. Have you seen it? I have not. It is on Gordon Park, the photographer Gordon Park, who's very famous for doing the kind of civil rights photography, etc. He did this like before he became huge, a huge photographer and filmmaker. He did this film with Petey in 1969 or 1968. The book came out in 1967. So right after the book came out, him and Petey partnered up in New York City and they did a super experimental film. It's bananas. I just did a screening of it last fall. Um, or maybe early in the spring semester. Uh, it's really good. And so he's reading excerpts of the book and they're showing us uh, uh, footage of New York City in that, like 1968. It is like really intense. So I would definitely, if you like Donnie, she's definitely watched The World of Billy Thomas and it's on I will, YouTube. It's on I will. I want to do a class that's just about that. You know, like the last exit to, um, the last exit to Brooklyn the Petey Thomas, the cross and the switchblade. I mean, even if you think about all the movies that were coming out, like even just at the butt end of the eighties, you know, that desperately seeking Susan and all that. Yeah. I mean, those, Have those are just coming out of this. 
Have movie. you read um, Ed, Ed Vega Junque? Um, he has, I mean, his books are real thick. He needs, a, he needed an editor with a machete in his lifetime. But Ed Vega Junque, <laughs> he wrote these books and the books are mad long. There's one that is called, that I recommend also like for like the scene of the city, the city as a, as a character. Um, it says, no matter how much you promise to cook and clean, it doesn't matter because Bill Bailey ain't never coming home. That's the name of the book. It's mad long. And then I would say Raising Victor Vargas is a great film. Oh, yeah. Forward, it's like the late 90s, but it is so sweet. And New York City features so beautifully there. And like the Puerto yeah. Dominican community features really beautifully. So I don't know. But that's, that that class sounds the bomb. That sounds awesome. Yeah. One of these days, I'm I'm working. I'm still working it through in my head. But I mean, it's uh, it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. One of these days. You'll have to come and guest lecture in that class. For sure. Yeah, for real. I had no idea that, and this is just my own ignorance, I had no idea that Hoboken was right across, it's right across from Manhattan. Yeah. You know, my family, and you know, I talked about this when we talked last time, but my family came and they uh, moved to Los Sudes in Brooklyn and I have some family in the Bronx. And then my aunt like moved on up and they moved from Los Sudes um, to Hoboken to the tenement buildings, which is I grew like up in the tenement buildings. Like the Jeffersons, yeah. <laughs> like the Jeffersons, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Jeffersons, like imagine the little railroad apartment with three rooms. Like it was, it was, yeah, really intense, you know. Actually, but then at a certain point in the in the late 1980s, after my my mom and her sisters had all moved to Hoboken to like raise their kids and all that stuff, the buildings yeah. started to burn, and they most of my tias got burnt out. And my mom is the only one. Our building burned, but our building burned in the late 90s. And so we ended up leaving our tenement building and moving to the project. But before that, all my tias lived in tenement buildings. They all got burned out. And then the majority of them moved back to Los Sudes, right? So they went back to New York City. Um, but, you know, I have mentioned this last time we talked, but, like, those fires are a very, like, live presence in my family's life. The, like, history of those fires. The fact that all of my uncle and my cousins got, like, dispersed out of Koboken in that means. And also that's a history that doesn't get talked about. Um, but you know, my sister is the first Latina firefighter, um, in our County and the first Latina captain in the state, I think, um, in Hoboken. And part of that is the kind of lived experience of of her having lived through, um, the trauma of these arson fires, right? She becomes like, you know, she's on the rescue. She can like do the draws of life. She can disarm a bomb. She can, uh, (laughs) um, repel a building. Like she's like, you know? Yeah. Like an action figure. Yeah, she she is. You know what? I'm gonna send you. Born in Kenya. I know. I'm gonna send you all um a link. They did a commercial with her. Like OxyClean did a commercial with her. Oh yeah. It's really cute. Um, but yeah, but like you know, you think about those like lived histories that we have in these places and how then they affect us down the line and in our decisions that we make. You know. Um, and that's important to document too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that you're teaching in the Chicano Studies program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes me that makes me very happy. I don't get to teach no. the undergrads, which I'm sad about. But Delia Fernandez does teach them, so I know she rocks their world. Um, but yeah. I teach the grad students. I teach a, a grad seminar, literary and cultural studies, and um, they're amazing. They're, like the yeah. first time I taught it, I had 18 students in the grad seminar. Like it was <laughs> intense. Like it was super intense. I was like, okay, there's a lot of you. You know, like let's figure this out. Yeah. Um, that's that's a big grad seminar, sister. They must want. They must have wanted that information bad. You know, and so it, it's incredible. Like the the Chicano Latino Studies grad students, like you know, first of all, the program like buses ass to support their students, and they get like so little support from the College of Social Sciences. And I'm gonna say that just because I'm not even in that college, so whatever. 
But like, they get so little support. Like, they get the short shrift on every level. And they really, like, there's a fundamental lack of respect of, of ethnic studies at Michigan State. And, you know, I know we have been doing a lot. A lot of the faculty have been getting a lot done and doing very innovative programs and teaching. But it's only because we fucking hustle to get it done. You la know? raza I mean, continues yeah. to fight. La raza continues to fucking yeah. fight at MSU. Yeah. 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 And so I'm really proud of the program and, and what they're doing and and what they're doing for their students. And I really wish that they had even more resources to bring in larger cohorts of students, you know? They have very well, small cohorts, so that's who they can support, you know? Um, hopefully now that Luana Simon is gone, because I, I can tell you, and I know this, I know this personally, I know this, that the biggest impediment, one of the biggest impediments to the development of Chicano studies or any type of ethnic studies at Michigan State University was Luana Simon. As soon as yep. she stepped down or resigned from being president, um, she uh, was forced to do African studies became a department. It was yeah. something that was slated to happen for a long time, but she kept yeah. blocking it. And so it became... She was never and, uh, going... And hopefully, Chicano right. Latino okay. studies and yeah. Native studies, the American Indian Indigenous, Indigenous studies will be the next ones to have that full support of the institution to become departments because I hope so. nothing, this is like, this is like, you know, the histories are like, it's like, it's native land. <laughs> it's like Chicano, Mexican Americans and, and Puerto Ricans that came to work this land afterwards, like being That's dragged right. here to like work on these lands. How are you not going to teach the history of the place? Yeah. You know, how are you not going to take that seriously? And so, um, so yeah, there has to be a lot more, um, respect for that and I think yeah. um, black studies faculty have been like agitated and working like doing steadily and the students working really steadily to get that like black history to be recognized as a project and, and black studies to be recognized as a project and that's really important and I think we need to take like some real excitement and some vigor from that success and try to agitate more um, to get what the students deserve from us because the students like you know, we need a lot. Like the, the we need a lot. We need a lot. Our students yeah, need a lot. for yeah. sure. All right. On that note, yeah. Juan Carlos, do you want to talk a little bit about what you're showing on the screen? I'm just showing uh, a Puerto Rican Hibaro <laughs> with the Puerto Rican flag and resistencia, and he's got a machete. You see the machete I right see there? The machete, yes. yeah. The machete is very clear. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like, choice of weapon. The artist, yeah. I don't remember his name, but he's out of Rincon. And this is where we have been. This is where we were back when we were at Michigan State. This is where Jomaira is right now. And we just got to continue in this mode. That's all. Yeah. yeah. I love that. And you know, the t-shirt that I'm wearing, and I wanted to wear this yes. one today because it is from Colectivo Ile, which oh, is yeah. a black feminist collective in Puerto Rico. And they have been doing a lot of community organizing mm -hmm. and consciousness raising all over the island around the, the 2020 census. And really yeah. trying to get Puerto Ricans to check Negra, Negro, Afro Descendiente, Afro Boricua on their, on their census. And this shirt is part of that campaign to yeah. really get um, an accurate representation of race on the island. It is, it is not an accurate representation of the stance. And there is no way for us to make any kind of legislation or even any make any claims based on race because those things don't exist. Right. right. So we can't right. say X amount of black Puerto Ricans are imprisoned because there's no there's, the numbers don't exist. Right. Um, or there's X amount of people employed, unemployed, under resourced schools 
there's no way that you can make a claim without that. And so really I'm, I'm very supportive of Colectivo Ile and all the work that they've been doing um, to do work like house by house, community by community, um, and trying to kind of um, get folks to link together. And we had talked about this the other day, like these terms that we have, like what are the terms and how do you come to, to, to identify in these ways, but how do we make ourselves collectively legible to a system that wants to erase us, you know? Right. Um, so, yeah. so, so Yumaida, I, I really feel that one of the greatest, one of the most beautiful things about your work is you're constantly asking us to step outside of ourselves and imagine one another, to look at each other. Uh, you know, one of the, it goes with right in step with one of our Mesoamerican philosophies. And I think 2020 definitely is asking us to do that, to for everyone as a community within our nation and the world to look outside of each other. And one of the greatest challenges or what potentials I see rather than challenges that I see is the black and brown coalition. How do we make this happen? What are the steps that we need to take? And I think, you know, communities, Afro communities, uh, Caribbean communities, Latin American communities have quite a bit of an answer to that because of that strong bond that already exists there. What's your perspective? What's, what do you have to say on that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's the, the work here that you're identifying is so critical. And I love the way that you set that up um, because I think the, the the approach is twofold. So there's kind of like the kind of larger ethical approach, which is like, you know, how do we understand ourselves in relation to other people, right? Which is something that in a kind of like radical individualist um, society that is the U.S., that is the kind of like modern world, it's really hard to to um, break away from like what I want, what I need, what, right? Like who do I need to like fuck over to get what I need to get, right? Um, versus how do I engage in a life that is in relation to other people um, and that that relationality um, enriches them, also enriches me, right? Um, but also thinking about Latinx folks working within ourselves and like within our own communities, as well as reaching out to like um, other black communities. So that black and brown relation is really important, but we also need to understand Latinidad as, um, as only being possible through like Afro-descendancy. Without Afro-Latinos, there's no Latinidad as we know it today, right? Like, and I think that's one of the things that becomes, that is, that is part of the problem, which is the kind of, um, ideologies of like this, like raza cosmica or like mestiza america, all these kinds of things um, really erase the lived experiences and the racism that like Afro-Latinos and indigenous Latinos face. So that when we are looking only to, for example, African-Americans in the United States or like black commu Anglo communities and saying like, oh, we need to work in relation to you. We also need to address the deep racism that exists in our families that exist in our communities, that exist in our countries, right? Um, and contend with that as well. So part of that is remapping and re-understanding our own histories of anti-Blackness and engaging with that, right? Like, and I, I remember, I'm sure you remember also the kind of contention around the Black Lives Matter um, protest this spring and the sign that said like, Latinos for Black Lives Matter. And like Black Latinos were like, well, we this too. Like, are you, you know what I mean? Like, what is it, what does that even mean? You know? Yeah, that, that um, sign was like, I was like, come on, you guys. It, but it's, like, I know you meant well, but yeah. dang. I think there's a certain, for me, it's like a certain kind of generosity you have to have because some people don't connect the dots, right? But that's also important. Yeah. <laughs> Part of that. Yeah. And so yeah, then that was, there's that the was work funny. we gotta do with us, and then there's the work that we gotta do with other communities, which is really a learn and try to figure out like either popular education, 
or uh, some type of way for us to proliferate the histories of the long history between Black and Latinx coalitions and working together, linking yeah. the ways that our oppression, our disenfranchisement, all those things are linked together, right? Like, um, we cannot imagine our history as exceptional or away from the Black histories of the United States. But we also can't imagine Latinidad without Black people already in it. So I think those are the kinds of um, things that we have to think about when we think about coalitions um, and really trying to, to eradicate anti-Blackness in ourselves and also like in our in our kinship and our communities, but also um, uh, in the way that we engage with other Black people, you know? See. I think that what you just said a second ago, you, you, I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I got, I'm gonna think about this one. I, I totally see how it's true. I just hadn't heard anybody necessarily put it the way you did that, um, that without black people, Latinidad doesn't exist, or at least doesn't exist the way that we understand it, right? And I think that that's, that's, that's huge. Yeah, I'm, that's, I'm, yeah, I'm gonna yeah, spend some I mean, time thinking it's, about it's, that. It's interesting because in, um, in, in New Spain, what later becomes Mexico, a Ladino is an enslaved black person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Like, um, and so you really have to, you know, my students. I'm doing a independent study this week, and my students are reading in Thais de Cuatro Visos, um, the Jose Luis Gonzalez, the kind of foundational kind of essays where he's critiquing um, Puerto Rico elitist conceptions of like, uh, you know, criollo, whatever Puerto Ricanness. And one of the things that he argues, problematic or not, is that Black Puerto Ricans are the first true Puerto Ricans because they're the first ones with no home, right? Like. They're, the, they're not the Spanish who are, um, who are like, uh, have a, uh, are trying to extract money to go back to Spain. They're not the native folks who are Tainos who are autochthonous to that land. They're right. like these black people who are brought here who have no way to get home, who have to create a new culture for a kind of place. And for him, mm. that, that, that Cuatro Pisos, the first floor, is this kind of black Puerto Rican that emerges that is a mix of these folks and says, actually can't. Can, can, can do anything. This is my place. Like, this is the place, right? So I think that's an interesting argument. Where I'm going to talk to my students about that. Um, but I also, you know, I have a lot of students, well-meaning students here at MSU, who, like, last year, they had a program, um, like, the, the group of, like, Chicano Latino students and then the um, African-American students had a program and they were like, let's talk about, like, Black and Latino together. And I was like, yeah, well, Black and Latino already exist together. Let's really think about, like, for, you know, that the coalition is important. Like Schomburg, you know, he got played out by a lot of folks in the um, in the Harlem Renaissance movement. As the Black Puerto Rican man, they were like, "Oh, we don't know if we can trust this Creole dude." You know what I'm saying? But also, like, you're the one that got the papers. He's like an archivist, right? He was like a bibliophile, a low key hoarder, you know. But like, he had all the documents that everybody needed. Um, <laughs> at the same time that he found himself really alienated from that elite group, you know. Um, at the same time that he was building their libraries for their university. Yeah. And so you really gotta, these are really complex histories. They've always existed. We just have to I'm, recognize them, you know? I mean, maybe one thing I know I do this with students because your point is re- is really a good one. When they talk about how do we get, you know, black and brown together. I and mean, maybe the question we should ask is why do you think that maybe we should really talk about why you don't think that that's already oh, yeah. happening, right? Yeah. Like, or Where did that, it you know, yeah, you know, yeah. and then, I mean, the whole idea about Latinidad in the way that it exists right now. I mean, that was, seriously, yeah. that was, yeah, that, that, that hit me. That yeah. hit me hard. That was good. Yeah, yeah no, thank you. I mean, yeah. we, I, I'm also, you know, when I teach like, um, I teach intro to black studies to the undergrads, AAAS 100. The, the class is so much fun. They love it. I love it. They're like, my school students come in and they're like, 
teach me something. Like, I'm ready. I'm ready. So, <laughs> also, I, I saw a video about a conspiracy theory. You know, like, they see there and they're like, I have, you know. And so they're, like, real out there. And they want to know this history. And when I started in Spain in the 1300s, they're like, what is this? You know, like, I thought we talking about race, you know, whatever. And I'm like. Uh, that's where that's where you start. You know what I'm saying? Like, whatever. Um, but yeah. they really enjoy that. And they kind of get that long history. And in teaching Black studies, I'm not just teaching, teaching African-American studies. I am examining that as a main part, but I'm bringing them to Latin America and the Caribbean, yeah. right? And I'm like, the largest number of Black people outside of Africa are in Brazil, in Colombia, and then mm-hmm. in the United States. So what are we saying? The largest number of people outside of Africa speak Portuguese and Spanish. Yeah. And yeah. English. But there's this kind of idea that like Blackness means English speaking. Yeah. yeah. And then it also and allows us as Latinos to yeah. scapegoat Blackness and be like, oh, all that shit that we say, right? Um, And really to push the blackness away, which is why in my in my first book I'm bringing in Africa because I'm like, there's no way that we can leave Africa out of this because when Spain loses the Spanish American War in 1898 and it loses Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and it loses Hawaii, all that shit, it turns around and goes back to Africa to its forgotten colony because they were completely neglecting Guinea Equatorial. And they were like, okay, well, you guys are all we have left. So we're going to recolonize you for another 70 years. Yeah. That connection wow. is is, compl- is completely connected, right? At the same time that when Cuba, when uh, when there were freed uh, Cuban slaves, so emancipados, they were deported. So they would free the black, uh, the enslaved black people in Cuba. They would deport them to Guinea Equatorial, to Sub-Saharan Africa, right? And then other things like when when the Philippines and Cuba and Puerto Rico, when they were like fighting against Spain and trying to get their freedom, um, fighting against, uh, you know, Spanish colonialism, the Spanish would go, would kidnap them in the middle of the night, put them on ships and send them to a penal colony in Guinea Equatorial. Right. So like there's this really interesting histories where we're like overlapping. Folks are coming here. They're going there. It's a very you know, important part of our history yeah. of the Americas. But like it's uncomfortable because we're like. We're exceptionally different. We're a mix of three races. <laughs> Whatever. Also, no me traigo un negro para la casa. But we're races, right? Like, yeah. and so we have to contend with that, you know? And even my own family, like my father, you saw the photo, is a black Puerto Rican man. My mother is a much lighter, wider Puerto Rican woman. And my father be like, Jomaira, a mí no me traigo un negro para la casa. And I'd be like, papi. <laughs> I'm like, papi, pero negro eres tú. Like, come on. <laughs> but there's like that kind of sense that like the language means a difference. And so the a black the uh, black person who speaks English is just completely different mm-hmm. than the black person. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that we need to get get into, right? Like really, really have to, to eradicate that shit. Because it's toxic. It's toxic, you know? That's all we have for today. My name is Ernesto Morales, and on behalf of the Dysfunctionals, I want to thank you all for listening. Be sure to leave a comment on our podcast site. Just search for The Reality Dysfunction on Podbean or like our Facebook page, The Reality Dysfunction Podcast. Best of all, share the episode to your friends. It's the gift that keeps on giving. This is now.
Welcome to the carnival. The arrival. I think she's eyeing me from far. 